We eat food every day, but how often do most of us think about where that food comes from and the impact it has on the world? Probably not as often as Alex Reich. We could take it slowly Or we could get insane No one ever got anywhere By playing it safe This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On today's show, we talk with Alex Reich from the class of 2011 about his time at Grinnell, his Watson Fellowship journey, and the dangers of black and white thinking, especially in relation to our global food systems. He came back to campus in the fall for the Center for Prairie Studies Local Food Symposium. Alex has some big questions and ideas for how to think deeply about food and the environment in a way that goes beyond simple categories and black and white thinking, either organic or local, vegan or carnivore. Those labels help us guide our lives, but are they accomplishing the desired outcomes for us and the world? That's coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Alex majored in biology at Grinnell, ran track and cross country, and was very involved in student environmental groups. After graduating, he went on a Watson Fellowship throughout the Arctic, studying the effect of climate on people's relationship to food. After that, he started a YouTube channel, Minute Earth, along with his brother, fellow Grinnellian Henry Reich. Minute Earth and the brother channel, Minute Physics, have amassed millions of subscribers. We don't even get into much of Minute Earth's stories in this conversation, but it's an incredible series and worth checking out. Alex has also continued his studies, pursuing a master's at the University of Minnesota. He's done a lot during his 30 years on this planet, but I wanted to talk to him about his biggest accomplishment, starring in the winning film of the 2009 Titular Head Student Film Festival. Alex, first, I gotta ask, how do you possibly live up to that reputation? Ooh, I leave the Grinnell College campus <laughs> <laughs> and nobody knows anything about it. Um, your Jedi past is is just a, a remnant of your imagination at that point. No yeah, one knows no, who you are. No, the force is still within me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Um, you know, Tithead is something that lots of people, even at Grinnell, don't necessarily fully understand. And I don't fully understand it, but people outside definitely don't. And so it's something that has its cultural context. And I'm super pleased that it's had staying power in the way that it has for making people have fun uh, in this weird quirky sort of make fun of ourselves moment yeah that, that titular head was at least when i participated in uh-huh. yeah so i'm super pleased <laughs> yeah i think it is uh some other titular head films are probably even more like wow i really don't understand this uh in the, in you know outside of the context of grinnell for sure um so i i guess you can be thankful that that your video is relatively tame yeah in, star, in star wars is broadly applicable yes okay so Actually, though, you've made some interesting inroads on working to raise awareness and educate people about these two kind of giant issues, climate change and food, which are obviously intricately linked and huge global problems. But how did you come to those issues as kind of the ones that motivate and guide your work? It's a good question. I came to food in the way that I think a lot of people come to food, which is that they they eat it and at some point they realize, oh, wow, there are different kinds of foods we could eat or 
there are different impacts that this food has on us or we eat really different food than people eat elsewhere. And so it was actually largely my awakening, if you will, was that I had the fortune to kind of graduate early from high school and travel in New Zealand and do some tramping, as they call it, which is backpacking in the mountains, and also to work on some field research, sort of studying the carbon dynamics of forests in New Zealand. But the house that we stayed in with the people we were working with was uh, an old farmhouse in New Zealand. And they, one of the people we lived with was like a carrot seed expert, okay. not not a carrot expert, like a, a carrot seed expert. Uh-huh. And a bunch of the other folks, you know, that we, they had a goat and the other people in the house also had this huge garden and I was just staying there. And the way that they lived was just, they had this big garden that they ate from. Uh-huh. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. You know, my family growing up had had, had, had a garden at times, but the mindset of the way that we eat is a big interaction point for us and the rest of the world and that we can actually be more conscious about it rather than just buying what's at the store we can think and act intentionally around it whether that's growing our own or whether it's buying in a certain way that struck me as something that I just had not really ever thought that deeply about Mm -hmm. and so when I ended up at Grinnell and got involved with sort of the um, food and environmental community here in my first year it just felt like a really natural fit that this thing that literally everybody in the world does right. a couple times a day, <laughs> If and if they don't do it, their life is not as good or yeah. they're less fortunate. That's a pretty significant thing in, in everyone's experience and also in the way that we interact with the rest of the world. And so that's how I came to food. And the way I came to climate was similar where it's the same kind of um, situation as with food, where everything we do kind of has this these kinds of impacts, and some of them are positive and some of them are, neg- are negative. But you know, you can almost look at any object you see, and there was some amount of work and energy done to create that object, or to move that person around, or to grow that carrot, if you will. And often that energy ends up because of the way that. Uh, fuel works and the way that metabolism works, we end up putting carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases into the air. And so all of our activity or almost all of our activity results in these kinds of emissions. And that idea that literally like every single thing we do kind of has this hidden footprint that we can't we can't actually see, but actually has this really big impact on the world. That was really fascinating to me and also really worrying to me because uh, there are some big uh, global environmental changes that are happening that are not as good as uh, we would like them to be as a result of our food and then also our other other activity. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I came to food and climate. And um, they're kind of interconnected. And the way that actually I, I came more to climate after I think I focused more on climate after I graduated than when I was here as a student, Mm -hmm. when I focused more on food and sort of traditional environmentalism. And it was really my Watson fellowship that led me to think more about the connection between food and climate. Uh So how did you kind of get interested in that theme of looking at how climate and globalization were impacting kind of like local on the ground indigenous peoples and the way that they eat and live their lives. Yeah. 
So the idea for my Watson came about actually as a result of my grandparents. And they had, in their retirement, been able to spend some time in the, in the Arctic traveling on sort of long boat trips down rivers and having adventures of that sort, more of a naturalist type. And I really, really valued learning from them about that, was inspired and, you know, I've always loved the outdoors and thought about the idea of going and having an adventure like that. And I was realizing that the knowledge that older people have in the Arctic is changing as the climate changes because the ice is no longer reliable or the weather patterns that have always been over this long mm. life of this person are no longer the way they are. And so is there a different relationship with the land that that person has um, that is no longer actually reflective of what's what's the reality? And how has that changed the intergenerational dynamics of Arctic people when the elders maybe don't actually know as much as they used to? And how is that problematic and how is that good? And, you know, also with globalizing forces, if there's a youngster with a GPS, does it, can they sort of make up for that loss of traditional knowledge with this sort of new, uh, newfangled technology mm -hmm. um, and incorporate that into their sort of knowledge? And that was the original idea I had for my Watson, inspired by my relationship with my grandmother and, and grandfather that a professor here said is not a very good idea, kind of tra <laughs> trash. Um, <laughs> And that was, uh, it was constructive criticism though, because what he essentially said is that's kind of a common idea and sort of this, the first level of depth of someone who's thinking about these kinds of issues, you know, who actually has studied them and, or mm. spent a lot of time learning about them or lives in these places. And you need to find something that's more you and that's deeper. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's where I ended up bringing in food as this thing that had been of interest to me through, you know, local food and um, the health impacts of food and people being able to have enough food here in the community or elsewhere in the world and what food means for us where we live and in our own personal lives. And so I ended up bringing together food and climate change and one of the things that sort of supposedly made my Watson proposal and my Watson itself unique and reflective of my own individuality was that there was this also this cold aspect of it. So food, cold, and climate. And those things reflected me. I'm from Minnesota. I love cold. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> that's sort of how all those things came together and how this one year kind of represented a lot of the things that had been a part of me in the past uh -huh. and still are. Hmm. And after that fellowship, like how how did you then kind of corral all the, I'm sure there were even more questions, you know, going in your mind than when you started. Um, and maybe you got satisfying answers to some of them, but I imagine they just propelled you towards a lot more questions. How did you kind of use that energy from the Watson to move forward and actually work on kind of starting to try to change some of these things? I didn't use it and I haven't used it in the sense of using in a, in as straightforward a way as one might think. Uh -huh. And I actually think that's one of the the values of experiences like the Watson allows us to have, which is an experience where we step outside of what our culture or our family or our institutions or our society as a whole tell us is what we should do mm -hmm. and climb the ladder, you know, do the rat race 
get successful, make a lot of money, whatever it is. And that's not necessarily something that Grinnell had inculcated in me, but having this opportunity to really totally step away as much as I could from our culture um, in a in a more intentional way, even than than Grinnell, where we are trying, you know, in the, the students and the institution itself is trying to be a little bit different than the rest of the world because, or the rest of the country um, in a lot of really positive ways. And I, on my Watson, kind of the undercurrent was to try to step as far away from our white supremacist, capitalist, live by the clock, do things fast, get here on time mm-hmm. um, culture, sort of part of the culture that it had helped me succeed at Grinnell, where I was taking a lot of classes and doing a lot of activities. Mm-hmm. And so essentially my experience was uh, letting me get outside that and slow down and be in a place that it didn't matter that we were late because we would get there when we got there, when Mother Nature let us get there, mm-hmm. rather than when the clock on the schedule that said we need to get here then tells us to get here. And so mm-hmm. when I returned, I actually spent a couple months like not really enjoying being back in American society and having really a hard time expressing why. And it's only been, you know, in the last couple of years, and I'm sure I will continue to take uh, meaning out of it. Um, for the rest of my life, but it wasn't something that I sort of used in that intentional sort of jumping off point kind of way, but more a thing that has informed my experience of the world and really grounded me in the fact that there are so many different people on earth and so many different places on earth, and they're all so different, and yet we have these shared things that we have in common. And, you know, with respect to the sort of environmental and climate aspect of my work, Uh, or my my Watson, you know, there were multiple levels to it. One level was that I wanted to understand and sort of see how bad it was essentially Mm. for these people who had done nothing to cause climate change, but were on the quote unquote front lines of it where their climate was changing way faster than ours. And if uh, they go, you know, from below freezing to above freezing, it's much bigger of a difference than if we go from 60 degrees to 62 degrees. Um, kind of like a, you know, a doctor who, or a doctor in training who wants to go to a place where there's a lot of medical need to then say, oh, there is this need in the world. I'm going to work on it for the rest of my life. And I kind of had that interest. And I think it has sort of functioned like that because there is, there is that need. We have a lot of changes that are happening on earth that are harming a lot of people and that are going to harm all of us um, more so than they already are. And we need to figure out how to adapt to them and how to deal with them. But also one of the biggest takeaways from my year was from the folks who I was with who basically, to sort of summarize, would say, we've been here for thousands of years changing climate and environment and conditions are the thing that have allowed us, rather than you white people from the temperate zones, to survive here. And we're going to keep on doing that, even though there's bigger changes happening now. And so it's a story of resilience that I think is, you know, a good thing for all of us to think about that it's, it's our capacity to change and deal effectively with it that helps us survive and thrive. And that you don't necessarily need fancy technology or other things like that in order to succeed. You just need not, you need knowledge and you need um, a willingness to do it and that that comes from lots of different places around the world is something that we need to remember. Mm. Yeah. 
I'm curious how how you see Grinnell as like playing a role in your development. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's played a big role. And I also think that, you know, going back and looking at photos and videos of people I know when they were like one and seeing strong aspects of their personality or their behavior already strongly formed then, uh-huh. I think there's a lot that in our own individual nature um, is already sort of part of us in our personality when we're very young. And there's also the aspects of our privilege of whether we're born in this century, in this country, in a middle-class family or a lower uh, economic opportunity family or a a super wealthy family, and whether we're male and white or whether we're uh, black and female or all of these kinds of things influence our opportunity in life. And so to some degree, I've had the personality that I've had for my whole life, probably for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I've also had a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunity. And so those things, I think, fit more with the idea of Grinnell or college as a place that you pass through on your journey of being who you already are. Mm-hmm. But I also think that, you know, it's not it's not just that. It's also not just nurture. Uh-huh. Um, it's a combination. And I do think that the opportunity to focus on and identify what you are really interested in, which is something that a liberal arts school like Grinnell and that I think Grinnell, you know, does better than lots of other places, although I can only speak from experience from one, um, is to really ask people what they're, what they actually feel like they're interested in and the opportunity that the college has provided for so many people to be quirky and, you know, pretend that they're a Star Wars character or go running, uh, running through the fields or, you know, climb trees and look at things or, you know, do this weird painting series or whatever folks who come here do that more mainstream culture in our country doesn't necessarily promote or looks down on even. Right. That lets, you know, I think a lot more people in in the world and in our culture have a lot more in them than is coming out because of the sort of stultifying effect of Mm. culture sort of bearing down on us. And one thing that, you know, I personally miss being out in the big wide world and that is so refreshing whenever I come back here is that there's a lot more possibility about what people can be when you're in a place that says, try being who you want to be rather Mm. than you are this or you are that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, whether or not that's unique uniquely unique to Grinnell, it's it's here, mm-hmm. and that's great. Yeah. So, of course, you answered my question not as an either-or, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the somewhere on a continuum uh, in between, which is a great way to segue into kind of what brought you here for the Center for Prairie Studies Local Food Symposium and your talk, which was called The Whole World is a Farm, Individual Stewardship Amidst a Global Challenge. You asked a lot of big questions and showed us some numbers and charts that made my head hurt, to be honest. But you question this kind of dualistic thinking in terms of climate and food. Eat local, forget organic, those kinds of either or black or white thinking. Can you explain a little more how that intersects with the world of food and climate and why it matters? 
Yeah. And I'll start by saying the fact that your your head was hurting was either a sign that I was a very poor poor communicator or that I was very effective uh-huh. and that when we're talking about these kinds of big issues or just in sort of storytelling in general, part of the goal is to bring people to a crisis point mm. and then say, here's a potential way out. Yeah. And sometimes that way out is actually not the way out. Um, and the goal is for that to be a real way out. Um, and I think that dualistic either or thinking is really limiting in the world in general. You know, I could get up and walk out the door or I could sit here. Those are like the, the sort of the two options that we often provide. It's like, yeah, or I could like go stand in the corner <laughs> or I could lay on the table or uh, I could. You could watch uh, Bailey the Lost Puppy, which is this lovely DVD. Or, or I could watch <laughs> Bailey the Lost Puppy. There's There's infinite opportunities at any moment. And we often think of just one or two. And you know, in the, in the context of the environment, it's kind of like we could do business as usual or we could all like be hungry and cavemen and, and you know, be environmentalists and save the world. And you don't want to just, you know, go back to the past and stuff. And that is way too much of a simplification because it's not just do we have business or do we have, you know, a livable planet. There is... And there must be a way, and we have to try to find that way, even if we don't know exactly what that is, where we can have human life on this planet, and we can also have other living things, and mm-hmm. we can have that human life be um, full yeah, healthy. and healthy and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in the context of food, that looks kind of like it's not necessarily conventional or organic it's not necessarily local or imported or global right. food. It's not necessarily vegetarian or carnivore. All of these things are on a continuum. And all of these categories, just you know, just like gender categories, where we have two mm-hmm. large gender categories. Yeah. And there's actually not just that simple of a situation. We have the opportunity to say, what is our actual goal here? What do we want from this as individuals and as a society. And if our goal is to grow food locally, why is that our goal? Mm -hmm. If our goal is to grow food conventionally, why is that our goal? You know, is it, if it's local, is it because we want to have a feeling of connection and know the people who we live by? And we like the idea of being sort of reliant on each other locally. And if it's importing food from elsewhere, is it because we love the idea of being super quote unquote efficient and growing things where they're climatically best or where, you know, we have built up this infrastructure around them, like growing corn in Iowa or growing vegetables in California. Mm -hmm. And why do we want that? Why is it that we think that that kind of thing is valuable? And, you know, in the same context of either or, I think one, one of our biggest things that we need to figure out is how to value things that are not yet within the monetary system Mm -hmm. of the world. And so that looks like, you know, the social costs or the quote-unquote externalities of things. You know, if I eat this one thing, it costs this much to buy, but if it impacts my health in a negative way, I'm actually paying for that. And we're all collectively paying for that, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's through the poor health impacts from smoking or, or diets or 
lack of exercise or air pollution or any of these kinds of things, there's a lot of negative health. And there's also the same kind of situation with climate impacts and figuring out how to incorporate the real value of having air to breathe or having knowing that, knowing that there's a fish in that river, mm -hmm. even if I don't necessarily eat it. Um, that's a thing that if we were able to do, we would actually have our systems reflect the reality of the world in a way that right now they're reflecting that we've decided to value only some of it mm -hmm. and not all of it. And so those sort of ecosystem services or life support systems that the fact that we live on planet Earth makes possible, those are the kinds of things that we need to incorporate more. And we have right now this system where we're kind of on a continuum from caring about some of those things, but not nearly as many as we could. Mm -hmm. And where on that continuum we need to be is a question, is sort of one, one way to frame our situation right now. And I think we should value more things. You know, we used to not even value uh, people of all genders or people of all races or ethnicities. And what if we push it, keep on pushing it farther and farther and farther and say, hey, what if we actually value other species as well, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of thinking is is an expansion of our sphere of caring, if you will, and our sphere of consciousness from I am the individual, I care only about myself to I care about my friend or my family or my neighbor or these other people. And so mm -hmm. we have a totally global society where, you know, our species is literally everywhere on earth and there's very little that actually differentiates us from people on the other side of the earth. And recognizing that, I think, is a really important part of having the sort of global consciousness or human identity that I think is something that really makes us, you know, more, more humble and more connected at the same time. That's a great way of thinking about the problems of dualistic thinking on a global level and how we can change that. So in the context of individual decision-making, this kind of dualistic thinking also comes into play, not just in our relationship with food, but it's really present in so much of our lives. Our brains seem to enjoy simple answers. Yes, no, black, white, either, or. So we end up seeking out guides like vegetarian, vegan, Democrat, Republican, whatever it is to guide our behavior and avoid the alternative, which is grappling with the infinitely complex world in which we live uh, for all the decisions that we make. So in the context of food, for example, you showed us the Time magazine cover that said, eat local, forget organic. And it's, you know, catchy, pithy, local food is the way to go, forget about organic, very black and white. And you poke all sorts of holes in that mantra and show how in many cases local food isn't achieving the desired outcomes. But when you talk with a local farmer or someone who's a big proponent of local food, how do you try to use your experiences from different vantage points in the food system to empathize and understand and connect with those people? Well, I should say that I probably do it poorly most of the time. <laughs> um, you know, I think really connecting with other people is really hard and inherently change is hard because all humans are conservative and it make, we've sort of evolved to be that way. If we randomly ate whatever was, tuber we did, dug up, that might not be good. You know, we kind of learn over time to, to not eat everything. Mm -hmm. And the same, you know, that's just an analogy for broader life. And that's why I think cultures are, most cultures are conservative. You know, they want to 
do the things that they've always done because that's how they've existed mm -hmm. and been able to sustain themselves. And so I think there is an inherent sort of challenge or greater than thou-ness that is really hard to avoid because I don't have all the answers and it's really hard not to imply that that one does when you're saying, hey, what if we thought about this differently? Because even the asking of that question is a challenge. Yeah. And I, I think I'm personally able to do this in some aspects of my life more than others. Mm. And one person cannot do this for literally every aspect of their <laughs> life. Um, and so- That would be a scary existence. <laughs> it would be. And, you know, in my own life and in my own perspective on sort of looking at ourselves as this global community of humans, these are some of the kinds of things that I think are really important to think about. And you could have the same questions locally in your own individual life of, you know, race relations in Grinnell, Iowa, even, mm -hmm. you know, that that sort of scale um, rather than human sustainability on planet Earth. Right. And that's valid. And I think one of the ways that I try to do this and the, the, like I started with, I'm not very good at, is the idea of really trying to understand what other people are experiencing mm -hmm. and what matters to them and trying to connect with them on values. And so not just sort of say the same old liberal talking points or environmentalist talking points or or whatever have you talking points because though that fits into these dualisms we're talking about of mm -hmm. you're an environmentalist or you're not you're you're a liberal or you're conservative you know we're all people and these are aspects that relate to the human condition regardless of whether or not we believe in them because they're influencing us through our culture or through our environment and they're things that we all therefore could um, influence positively or have our worlds changed if we were more cognizant of them. And I don't know, I don't think we all can be aware of every single thing at the same time. We would be crippled by that in a lot of ways. But I do think that, you know, the breath that you can take before you go into a building can help you get outside of the single frame that is your mind on that day at that moment. And that, again, in the context of continua, Doing that a little bit is better than not doing that at all. Mm -hmm. It's not that you have to become the Buddha or or whatever in order to be a good person or to be someone who's trying. The idea of trying and continuing to try harder and really trying to be aware. And I am, you know, I think in many ways you can say I'm a hypocrite in saying this because I fail at this all the time, mm -hmm. but I think I'm trying. And yeah. I think that's the important thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think big takeaway that I took from from your talk yesterday is, you know, yes, these problems are giant, but you know, kind of you left us with uh, you know, a message of like, you know, figure out what it is, what are the values in your life that you care about, you know, if it is in the the health of our environment, align your approach with what you want to achieve and then do something about it. Mm -hmm. And especially when we're thinking about the giant nature of some of these problems, you know, even those small actions can feel insignificant sometimes, but it's maybe enough to just propel you to just keep doing it and give you a, a little bit of a sense that, you, you know, even if you're not tackling climate change by yourself, like 
you're doing the work of a human being and you're doing something that's getting us all a little closer towards that. Agreed. And what is what is collective action but a bunch of people individually doing a single little thing that on its own doesn't really matter, mm-hmm. but as a whole ends up electing someone to office because they're all doing that individual voting or ends up buying some product that makes some more friendly or more ethical or other type of product possible or not buying something that sends the message that this is actually not something that humans in this particular context value at this time. Yeah. Um, totally. And I also do want to say that I think that local food is a good thing to strive for, um, even though in my talk and in my my own life, I question it. I think, you know, I one thing that I am working on is not being as critical of everything, <laughs> including myself. And cheers to that. Um, <laughs> You know, we're most critical of the people, or the people who love us most are most critical of us, or, you know, there's yep. some saying like that. And yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, local food and all of these, anyone trying to do something slightly different or radically different from the way it, a thing is conventionally done, it's a worthwhile kind of effort mm. because it tries to find something that's different yeah. and make that possible. And, yeah. you know, let me caveat that statement because I don't think that uh, all kinds of efforts are worthwhile because there are some that, given that I believe in things like human rights and whatnot, I think are probably not adding as much positivity to the world. Yeah. But the kinds of efforts that we're talking about where it's people who are being thoughtful and who um, are thinking about have their sort of sphere of concern outside of their own self um, that... Uh, are are valuable as counterpoints to saying we're just going to keep on doing things the way we've always done them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And we need to, you know, kind of hold up people who are doing those things and trying to make these change and and give them a pat on the back and a kick in the butt to to keep doing it. Um, you mentioned that you you know you you don't know if you did a good job, you know, of being like empathetic sometimes and like you you present a lot of these you know, cold, hard facts and like, mm-hmm. or even just like sometimes the questions that you ask can, can maybe seem like unfeeling or mm-hmm. like unemotional. And I, it's interesting to hear about how you're kind of trying to like poke holes in your own mind sometimes and like be a little more feeling and try to be less critical and like these sort of things. Um, I don't know if you've listened to Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history podcast at all. I have not. But there's there's an episode about pulling the goalie. I, you're from Minnesota. I'm sure mm. you'll understand this metaphor. So traditional knowledge, like if you're down one or two goals in a hockey game, I mean, the third period, you know, maybe with like f- three minutes left, you might pull the goalie, like if you're, if you're down a couple goals. Yeah. But, you know, statistically, the evidence shows that like if you're down by two goals, you should be pulling your goalie with like 12 minutes left or something Hmm. like that. Like you, it's much before like conventional knowledge, but no coach is going to do that because Hmm. they would get fired and the fans would just ream them. Even if the numbers say like, this is how you should behave. Yeah. We have, humans have like this emotional reasoning as well. Like we want the easy answers, like either or thinking sometimes our brain likes that, but we also at the end of the day want to be like emotionally satisfied with the way that our behaviors work. So I think that also is kind of tricky in in terms of the the conversations that that you're having because people want, 
you know, to live lives that sit well with them at the end of the day as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. I think people totally are legitimate in wanting that. Yeah. And we have less freedom, I think, to change than we often might want because cultural and economic forces are very strong. And that's why an individual farmer has a really hard time changing or an individual eater can't change the entire food system on their own. Mm -hmm. And it's also why, you know, the NHL hockey coach can't pull their goalie or with 13 minutes left in the game. And I think that's where efforts to ask the questions come in. And, you know, I think of like 538, maybe 538 or some, some researcher looked at the statistics in the hockey games and said, oh, this is interesting. This many goals get scored in this amount of time when there's a goalie pulled. If you actually want to score two goals or whatever, you know, have the highest chance mm -hmm. of, of getting back to the lead, you should pull it earlier. Someone had to ask that question. And even though I think hockey isn't necessarily as important as feeding people, um, it's analogous because someone had to ask that. Someone had to write it up. Malcolm Gladwell had to put it on his podcast yeah. for us to say, oh, isn't that interesting? There's a different way that we could be doing things. And I think stories can connect sort of the quantitative aspect of the world with the way that we think about the world and sort of the mental models. And, you know, we used to think that the sun revolved around the earth and then someone actually used data and also thought about it and asked questions and said, oh, wait a second, maybe that's actually not true. And that was a, that was a revolution. Yeah. And now we have that as our baseline. And Lots of us, or most of us, aren't aren't asking if that's actually true anymore. We've moved on to other things. And so I think there has been an incredible amount of progress made in our understanding of the world and our understanding of each other and our understanding of um, how things are. Um, and that one of our biggest our biggest challenges is how how do we connect with people who are different than us, who believe something that's different? and not delegitimize what they believe and what they think is important and share what we think is important. Mm -hmm. And w one way to do that is to learn from, is to not have it be uh, proselytizing or missionizing or an environmental evangelizing. And I think I could do better on this. Mm -hmm. um, I think I fall into that camp. And I think one way that I am trying to do more of is to think of what is, what is it that we want out of this? You know, the reason that I'm interested in uh, addressing climate change as an issue is actually basically the same reason that someone is interested in um, national security. There are different sort of beliefs about the way to get there, but the ultimate goal is some people being able to live well on earth. Mm -hmm. And what well is, again, also... Sort yeah, of, different people, different ideas. Exactly. Um, but yeah, long wandering way to say that trying to connect with each other and understand and empathize with each other feels like a really important way to do it and something that I'm constantly working on because I I find it easier both for the way that maybe my brain works, the, you know, the science and the sort of quantitative fields that I've studied or being a male, or being an American even, or Westerner, 
it can be harder for me to do those things than it can for someone else who has learned or is more inclined to think, use their emotional brain, if you will, or their um, empathetic brain or their connective brain to feel through things in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need we need all of them because there is some ultimate way that physics seems to work and biology seems to work and chemistry seems to work. And that's the canvas on which all of the colors of human uh, culture and experience get painted onto. Mm. And understanding what that canvas is can help us understand how how to paint better, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> There's a painting behind you. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. I don't like it, but it is a painting. Oh. So, you know, we talk about a lot of this like either or thinking and kind of how everything is kind of a continuum and we need all of the people along it in their own different ways and helping to solve a lot of these big problems. Um, but the the kind of lesson you you left us with at the talk yesterday was, you know, align align your life with with your values. So broadly applied, what is it that you want and then design things to to get to that point. Um, and hope you're lucky and privileged and there's enough chance and the world is ready for <laughs> the things that you're hoping to have yeah. happen and that what little you can do as an individual can collectively along with the efforts of everyone else who's working for the same thing or for different things or for their version of the same thing mm-hmm. add up to something that moves us in that direction a little bit. Yeah. I want to change the world. I've drunk the I've drunk the Kool-Aid you know from Grinnell or from growing up at this moment in time in this place and it's really hard to realize that oh we only have a certain amount of ability to do that yeah there are certain things we can do to make that higher or less and we can't let the fact that we only have that limited ability stop us from doing it it's not we're we have an infinite power we have zero power it's a continuum from zero to you know, I don't know that anyone's approaching infinity, uh-huh. but uh, <laughs> somewhere along that is where we are, and and that's worth working on making greater. Yeah, because yeah. the more power you have, the more power you have to bring into the world your vision. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So, thank you for using whatever whatever power you have. You know, whether it's through Minute Earth and and the YouTube stuff. I think you're. You're continuing to ask the questions, and I, I feel confident and, and happy to know that there are people like you out there asking those questions. So thank you for, for doing that, for coming to Grinnell and, and visiting and, and talking with us here and for um, coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. Today you asked most of the questions, so thank you for what you're doing. And uh, for anyone who wants to get in touch, uh, you can send me a message on Twitter at Alex H. Reich. That's A-L-E-X-H-R-E-I-C-H. I'm happy to connect with Grinnellians of all stripes and colors. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Ben. Check out links to Minute Earth, the PBS show Hot Mess, and some beautiful pictures from his Watson Fellowship on the episode webpage. Right now, it feels like a scary time to be asking the big questions. Pondering the meaning of life and the future of our existence on this planet is heavy. But many people are being forced to think about these questions right now. And it honestly might also be a perfect time to do it anyway. Alex had a few more things to say about taking time to pause and think about the big questions as he reflected on his Watson Fellowship. What is the meaning of all of this? Or what am I interested in? Or how does this work? And essentially pause 
and not get up and do the same thing we do yesterday, today, mm-hmm. and tomorrow, and really take that moment and say, what are my interests? You know, what is the meaning of life? You know, are we doing well? Mm-hmm. Where did we come from? Where are we going? And these are the kinds of things that I think we would all be better off if we if we thought more about and asked more of ourselves. And having the, the luxury, the privilege of doing that um, is something that I, I want more people to be able to have. And I think we can all practice that even in our daily life. You know, before I came into this building, I stood for like 10 seconds and looked at the sky and was like, okay, here I am in the middle of Iowa, going to go talk about things, you know, and I could have just run right into the building and just gone through it. But I think taking that kind of breath is important. You know, we, we never think about our breathing and we just do it. And if we actually take a moment and consciously think about it, it can help us. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an entire year of experience. It can be 10 seconds every day. If I wasn't sad, I'd overpayful net Don't work no more, I'd disconnect the dial Turn the sound check of being a lose Wandering, don't keep you strong It works in spurts, but not for long Your roots, they need some loving on The soul can be a desert Only you can grow your garden Before we go, a few things. We've reached episode 15 of this second season of All Things Grinnell, and I'm going to take a break before I start with the next season. I've got plans to do some exciting stories on titular head and the classes of 1970 and 2020, and I've still got tons of interviews from the past year to share. Feel free to check out old episodes that you missed in the meantime, or take that extra couple hours and do something to take care of yourself, or someone else, if you're able. Then I just want to give a shout out to some new music out there with a connection to the podcast. Pink Neighbor, who we talked with a few weeks ago, just put out a new album, Lounge Sounds 2, available on Bandcamp. If you're feeling cooped up, these tracks will transport you to another world. And then there's Brett Newski, who provided me with the theme song for this podcast long before it was even a real, live, breathing entity. He's got a new album out too, titled Don't Let the Bastards Get You Down. This song, Grow Your Garden, is about taking care of yourself during these crazy times. But I think the literal interpretation works well too. If you've got a garden, probably not a bad idea to tend to that right now. Music for the show comes from Brett Newski and Pottington Bear. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show to get new episodes when they come out. And follow us on the college's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to keep up with the podcast. If I was a raging tide, I'd have nothing to hide inside, and that don't get me anywhere but bludgeoned by the air up there. If I was on the safety raft that pulled you from the aftermath, I'd give your sleepy chick a smack so you could see the future. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, pass it along to a friend and take care. Only you can grow your garden. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. <laughs>